Welcome to China in Context. I'm Duncan Bartlett. President Biden is pursuing re-election for a second term, urging voters to give him four further years to finish what he started. He hopes to set aside worries about his age and rather poor showing in opinion polls, saying that when he ran for president four years ago, it was a battle for the soul of America. But there's also been a battle with China during Biden's first term in office. So will that continue or will there be a softening of tone? My guest on the podcast today is ideally placed to offer his expert perspective on US-China relations. James McGregor spent well over three decades working in and covering China from various angles, including as a Wall Street Journal reporter and as the author of two highly regarded books and as the chief executive of Dow Jones and Company in China. Today, he serves as chairman of APCO Worldwide's Greater China Region. Jim, welcome to China in Context. Oh, thanks for having me, Duncan. Now, let's start by looking at the developments in the US-China relationship during Mr. Biden's first term in office. Can you give us your appraisal? When Biden first came in, the way the Chinese looked at it was things were going to get a lot better because, uh, you know, Trump had been pretty hard to deal with and keep track of for, for China or for everybody. Um, Biden um, had spent more time with Xi Jinping than any other American politician, um, because when he was vice president, he traveled with Xi around China and she traveled with him around the U.S. And they had a number of long, long meetings and, and time together. So I think China figured they know this guy and, um, you know, he's going to come back and um, maybe undo uh, some of the uh, things that uh, Trump put in. Well, they they were soon surprised to find out that wasn't going to happen. What happened was the conversation and the viewpoint in Washington changed over time. You know, myself and others from the American Chamber of Commerce, we would go to Washington on our door knocks when we meet with officials and Congress people and say, look, China's on a decent trajectory. Give them a break. You know, let's let's just kind of move things along here. But as China made it harder for business, as there was hacking and forced tech transfers and markets being narrowed, business opportunities, the business community even was going to Washington saying things have to change. This is a different China we're dealing with. And then Trump came in and pushed that in a very um, somewhat disorganized, but he did change the conversation. And so it, the consensus had already built in, in Washington that uh, we needed to have a different view of China and uh, different policies. And so Biden has come in and he's um, really um, been strong on, on Xinjiang. He's been strong on Taiwan, um, maybe uh, saying things that were stronger than some people like. If you want to look at basically the Biden administration's policy on China, Anthony Blinken said it when he first came came into office. He said, we need to invest at home. We got to invest in ourselves, in our economy, military, our democracy to strengthen ourselves because we have a very tough competitor out there in China. We need to align with our allies and partners. We can't be out there alone. Um, they face the same situation with China as we do. We got to craft policies to try to work in tandem with them. Then finally, we got to compete. You know, we got to focus on technology. We we got to have industrial policies to compete, which was getting rid of what they used to call free market fundamentalism. And um, he's moved it along pretty well with uh, a number of big uh, legislative packages. Yeah, that's very striking, actually, the move towards these industrial policies, as you put it. Uh, 
quite a long way from the old neoliberal ideas that used to uh, attract a lot of international criticism for the United States. But let's imagine then that Biden does win a second term. I understand that there's you know, quite a lot of speculation <laughs> involved in that. Would you expect more of the same in terms of China or do you think that there could be a fresh approach? Uh, no, I would expect more of the same. It depends on China, actually, because um, we have to have a dialogue with China. Um, I was meeting um, with the Biden administration just a couple of weeks ago in Washington um, with a group from the American Chamber. And uh, one, one national security official said to us, you know, when, when you have very um, difficult problems with a country, we believe in um, uh, uh, um, lots of diplomacy. We got to talk a lot. We got to settle things down through talking a lot. And this person said, but China, they have a different opinion. We won't talk until you admit everything that's gone wrong is your fault. And so that's where we're stuck right now. China comes to the conclusion that they want a stable relationship with the U.S. We're going to have to talk. Um, and I think that could bring things down. And the business community is stuck in the middle of this in a very difficult position because business has always looked at the bridge between uh, China and the U.S., China and Europe, China and the outside world, that those business ties would um, bring understanding between people and make, make for a, a peaceful connection. But now business has gone from being the bridge to the battleground in many instances because of technology, high-end manufacturing, new materials, et cetera. As economies have gone from globalization to weaponization, where you take the strength of your economy and you use it, you kind of weaponize it. China did this long ago, and we're doing that now with the CHIPS Act and um, some other things. Well, when Joe Biden and Xi Jinping met on the sidelines of the G20 in Bali last year, they both said that the world expects China and America to work together on crucial issues. And the US Treasury Secretary, Janet Yellen, She's called for a more constructive and fair economic relationship. You know China well, having lived there a long time. How do you think China's leaders are reading these messages that they're hearing from Washington? Oh, I think they're watching it very closely and they realize the U.S. You know, wants to have a, a, a stable uh, dialogue between the countries on many levels, from military to technology to trade to climate change, etc., uh, but I think China's in a position now where they want them to beg a little more. They see too many things coming at them. They see the CHIPS Act. They see um, all the rhetoric on Taiwan and all of the support for Taiwan and the, you know, the we weapons allotments that are increasing for Taiwan. Um, they look at outbound investment controls that are on the table now. They're afraid if they have a, a dialogue with us and Xi Jinping meets, the next day we come up with a policy that embarrasses him. So there, there's, you know, there's so many levels of uh, trying to get us back on track. But I think both countries know they need to get back on track and have a dialogue. Now, so far, we've been talking about the Biden administration. We don't know yet who the Republican presidential candidate will be for 2024 because they haven't been nominated. But we do know that Donald Trump and the Florida governor, Ron DeSantis, are aiming for the White House. I'm sure there's going to be a long, bitter election campaign with lots of angry speeches about China delivered from the stump. What are the implications of that? Yeah, that'll be interesting to see because every election comes around and China uh, is batted around a bit, but it's never really been a central issue in, 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 in campaigns in the past. There was 
you know, there was uh, Bill Clinton complaining uh, about the butchers in Beijing and stuff like that. But it never is in the center. It could be quite central this time, and we'll have to see. Well, the Republican candidates, um, DeSantis hasn't shown um, um, an inclination to say much about anything to do with uh, international affairs. He did say something about Ukraine, that it was a border dispute and got hammered for it and had to walk it back. Um, so we don't know his view of China. I'm sure he will attack the hell out of China because that's that's his campaign mode. He attacks. He, he attacks. That's what he does. He's an attack dog. You know, everything is woke. He'll start calling China woke. You know, we got rid of woke China. Who knows? And Trump, God knows what he'll do. He'll it depends which way the wind is blowing. He might be saying Xi Jinping is his best friend and that um, they will never attack Taiwan as long as Donald Trump is in the White House. Events also drive campaigns. We'll have to see what happens as we get into the campaign season. Now, several times already, Jim, you've mentioned Taiwan. Let's focus on that for a moment, because the Taiwanese president had a meeting earlier this year in California with a Republican politician, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. And when I read Chinese state media, I often come across articles which say, that the Democrats and the Republicans are using the Taiwan issue as a political football. Actually, I think there must be some truth in that. What's your perspective on the way in which the debate about Taiwan is taking place in the US at the moment? I started my Asia reporting career with the Wall Street Journal in Taiwan and uh, covered the democracy movement. And uh, I've gone back um, you know, on a regular basis since. And actually, I was just there in November. Um, Taiwan has huge support in the U.S. Congress, huge, uh, because they have, for years, they've had the uh, delegations of visits and, and um, interaction. And also the U.S., I mean, you got to remember, the U.S. was very involved in helping shape Taiwan becoming a democracy. And it's the first Chinese democracy in the history of the world. And that is taken very seriously in Washington. So it's not so much about about using Taiwan against China, it's that they want to protect Taiwan and what it's become, which, of course, China looks at as a threat. They do not want a thriving Chinese democracy sitting off just off their shores um, because of comparison of political systems. So, of course, like Putin, you know, if, if you're running um, an authoritarian government, it's all about you. Everything that happens is aimed at you. And, you know, you're, there's a, a certain paranoia of that form of government because you pick yourself. And so they look at what we do on Taiwan in the U.S. as an existential threat for the party itself. And uh, when I was there, um, what people told me is Pelosi's visit changed everything in that it um, woke up the rest of the world to um, the threat that Taiwan was under. But they also said, why don't you shut up for a while? If you keep poking China, you're going to cause us more problems than we can handle. Um, if you want to help us, just help us quietly. This is a very serious and worrisome issue now because uh, you know China and the U.S. are are so far apart on it. And it's if you if if Taiwan was attacked, um, you're going to crash the world economy. Ninety-two percent of the world's top chips come from there. The you, you'd be shutting down auto factories, um, whatever, and especially if those. Fabs don't go back into production, which I don't believe they would anytime quickly after um, an invasion. Let me share with you my perspective from London. In my view, it looks as though China is trying to play the European countries and America off against each other to undermine the transatlantic alliance, as it were. 
So I wonder what would happen if the next president, whoever he may be, decides to take a much tougher line against China. Might be Biden getting tougher. It might be a Republican president playing tough. But it seems to me that in such a scenario, the more pragmatic European countries, such as Germany and France, could well decide that it's in their national interest to take a softer, more friendly approach towards China. Where would that take us in terms of geopolitics? Well, this is um, you know where the Biden administration right now is um, trying to sort things out because China forever has wanted to separate Europe and America. I mean, this has been ongoing from day one of relations coming back in the modern era. Um, they do not want an, an Atlantic alliance that that um, is um, you know allied against them on on various policies. And remember, um, it's easier for China to intimidate Europe because the countries of Europe are the size of a Chinese province, um, and you know they're they're uh, they can be overwhelmed. Now, some of the things that China's tried in retribution for Europe, like Lithuania, were so over the top they further brought the uh, the the alliance together. Um, but you're right, you're right. It's a uh, the, they do not want an all hands on deck anti-China um, uh, policy. They want to compete with China, but they're also recognizing that they believe China is a, a threat in certain areas, uh, as does the United States. So I, I think the U.S. and EU will find a balance. There'll be some countries that are, you know, whether it's Turkey or France, that are going to kind of go their own route um, uh, or not. We'll see. Um, but uh, everybody, you know, this is a competitive world. China's smart. China has done these industrial policies. They got great scientists, and they are determined to um, uh, basically to have a lead in in uh, quantum computing and biotech and AI, um, uh, high end manufacturing. Um, they're hardening their economy um, so that you know this dual circulation is very important. It's about making the world more dependent on China um, selectively and making China less dependent on, on the world. It's hardening their economy for long-term hostility from the West. And, and uh, we have to recognize that and we have to figure out how we compete with it. Well, thank you, Jim, for sharing your ideas with us. Ideas drawn on a wealth of experience. That was James McGregor, chairman of APCO Worldwide's Greater China Region. This podcast is made by the SOAS China Institute in London, and you can find out more about our courses and research at soas.ac.uk. But for now, that's all from us here on the China in Context podcast team. Mm -hmm.